So the first year was really the perspective of how do we fix all the plumbing and the stuff behind the scenes so that we can execute effectively and coherently and with beauty and brilliance over the next four years. So that was everything from the brand strategy to product positioning, to re-architecting the product portfolio, to uh, redesigning the identity and the identity system around it, um, and getting some kind of core capabilities built in the marketing, design, creative, and media departments within the company. I mean, this was, this was like the unsexy behind the scenes stuff that nobody really saw, except for the, for the brand relaunch. So we had a few kind of like um, KPIs that we kind of tracked ourselves against to make sure we were doing that really well. Then the second year, which is getting the marketing machine humming. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum. From world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Leland Mashmeyer. Leland is a designer and business executive. He's fascinated with incredible innovation and incredible scale. He's the co-founder and co-chief creative officer at Collins. In 2016, he joined Chobani as the chief brand officer. And today he's the co-founder of two startups, River, an interest discovery platform, and Sway, a material science company looking to create plastic out of seaweed. The World Economic Forum nominated him as a young global leader. He's a board member of the One Club for Creativity, and his other accolades are too numerous to mention. We talk about Leland's practical and philosophical take on branding, his four-year plan to diversify and grow the Chobani brand, and how the switch from agency to clients changed his view about building brands. Enjoy. So Leland, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. So you've got a quite an interesting sort of CV. You've been through all sorts of, you know, you've been in the agency side. You've now you switched to, to um, you know, Chobani to be the head of an internal team and now you're looking for the next sort of exciting opportunities can you can you talk a little bit about how you moved from sort of building brands for people to building kind of an in-house you know so instead of building it for people almost building it for yourself like what was that transition like and and do you find there to be a sort of a different way of approaching it depending on if you're sitting sort of in the agency or whether you're actually sitting, you know, at the seat in the, in the, the company. Yeah, totally. Um, so, you know, one of the reasons why I was very early on in my career attracted to the world of 
brand and brand building is because it was a very inclusive discipline. It was a big tent discipline, right? Because everything affects your brand. And so for me, that was always really interesting uh, as, a, as a portal into lots of different kinds of conversations. It could be about ad campaigns or packaging or identity. It could also be about internal culture and uh, company structure, company purpose, and things like that. So I love the expansiveness of it. Um, so for me, moving from the agency side to the client side really wasn't that big of a difference You know, when I made the decision. To me, it was just I was moving to the other side of the coin. And I expected a lot of the things that I learned on the agency side to translate well into the client side. And of course, I expected to learn some stuff and have unique experiences on the client side. Um, what was really interesting to me is the learning that I had about when you're actually in a company and building a brand, it is very, very different than being on the agency side advising companies to build the brand. And I think you can probably catch the sense of that just in the language that I used. On one side, you're building a brand. On the other side, you're advising others how to build a brand. So the relationship dynamic to the brand is very different, one from ownership to, to consultant. Um, it's not to say that they are apples and oranges, um, but they are still very different in, in some significant ways that is, is sometimes hard to wrap your mind around at first because you're trying to apply a agency mindset and an agency approach to building things in a completely new context, which none of that stuff matters. Um, because when you're on the agency or when you're on the client side, it's, there's so much to do and there's so many other priorities to handle other than brand building. Cause when you're on the agency side, like that's the most important thing. The brand is the most important thing. When you get on client yes. side, it's, it's one of the important things. Sometimes it's even lower down the list than you might think, um, depending on the conversation and the time. But yeah, it's, it, they are two very different things, but I'm very thankful to have had the experience of both. And what was, you know, in that, in that experience, and I love that language of, of building the brand versus advising how to build. Like, what do you think the, where do you think the agencies fall, not short, but sort of where their work stops that, that they could hear a little bit about what the clients need to actually continue to, mm -hmm. to build that brand, to actually sort of take it to market and connect it. Yeah. Well, I think the the important thing is to know that a lot of people client side aren't brand builders. It's just not their expertise. Brand building is a collective outcome from lots of people doing their own specific work. So you may have someone who is in procurement and sourcing, right? Who's making decisions related to specifically procurement and sourcing, but obviously in any number of industries, the ingredients and the sourcing strategies affect your brand. You may have someone who works in shopper marketing and is focused on uh, the dynamics of a retailer relationship and is making decisions according to what is going to be most successful in a retailer uh, uh, relationship dynamic. Of course, some of that adds up to a brand. So there's very, there's very rarely one person or one department that is responsible for the brand. Everyone client side is doing a piece, is making a piece of the brand puzzle. And you just hope 
that senior leadership has enough uh, uh, vision, communication ability, and consistency in the narrative that they're telling that everyone in the company starts thinking with a holistic mind and is making all these micro and nano decisions that in the short run don't seem like they're making a significant impact on the brand. But when everyone across the company is making all those micro and nano decisions in, with under the same vision and, and long-term ambition, that adds up to the brand. And, you know, that's, that's really hard to manage. Um, it, you know, everyone <laughs> has different competing agendas and ambitions and personal perspectives and different takes on, on what is right for the brand or not. And so you're really managing a lot of tiny, tiny decisions, um, on the, on the client side. And so again, no one is expert at building a brand. You're just expert at the one function that you do. When you're agency side, you are expert on advising people how to build a brand. So what that means is you are trying to pass along frameworks, language, tools, analysis of, um, uh, or diagnostic tools to help people understand you know, where their brand is right now and where they need to push it and then what actionable steps, even assets that they can use to help shape it and, and move it in another direction. So, so the language is very different, right? On um, the agency side, it's about teaching and, some, and oftentimes delivering the assets and tools. And then on the client side, it's about trying to figure out how in between the, the decisions you have to make for your specific function that you're leading, how can you make a decision a little bit more of a brand supporting decision or not? And so, you know, those, that's probably the crux of the difference between the two experiences. I mean, I love, I love that idea because I'm not sure if, if every creative gets that idea that we're actually teaching people and having to hand over these tools. I hear a lot of people complaining about, oh, look what they've done to the brand. Look, you know, they've taken my work from this high level and they've executed it so poorly. But I find the disconnect there is that you don't realize that the people who are executing the brand don't, they don't have Illustrator, they don't have Photoshop, they don't have 10 years of design experience. They, they, they just don't possess those skills mm -hmm. and, and the tools that you gave them weren't necessarily the right thing for them to do their job properly. I mean, we recently took took the jump and we've started a few projects where we're going to own our own brands at Nicework. And it's been such an interesting journey. So normally when you're printing stuff, you're trying to print the most badass thing ever and use as many finishes as possible and make it look as beautiful. And now suddenly that we're paying for the printing, the conversation dynamic changes. We're like, okay, where's the right amount of spend mm -hmm. so that the packaging looks good but also doesn't destroy all of our profits and therefore make this product not a real product and more of a passion project. So, so that's been a fun journey for us to sort of go on and I think has given us a lot more empathy for how clients need to think about the work that we do for them and how we can help them to sort of think that journey through a little bit better. Yeah, and I, I have a friend here in the United States who runs his own mid-size agency in the, in the southeastern United States. And he started a, so he has his agency and then he started a product company, a beer company. And he has been, you know, he's one of the most awarded and successful 
people in the history of advertising and just loved by everybody and a huge champion of the world of creativity and design and things like that. And as a business owner, he's like, I can't do any of that. Like, it's too expensive to do any of that. Like, it'll crush my margin. It'll destroy it. Like, I can't, I can't, I can't be the best marketer for my brand because I don't have the money to do that. And I have all these other problems, like at, at the, at the, um, the warehouse and distribution and just getting awareness of the product. Like, I have these very basic needs. And I think it's a really great contrast in what an agency context aspires you to do versus what leading a business aspires you to do or inspires you to do. So in the agency mm -hmm. context, you want to put a dent in the universe. You want to do something so cool and breakthrough that people take notice. And you may measure that in terms of awards. You may measure that in terms of uh, cultural resonance. You may measure that in terms of, you know, what kind of impact it has on the, on the company. But when you're inside the company, you just want to survive to the next day and be a little better tomorrow than you were today. And you have all <laughs> these things that you have to manage, the energy, morale, money, uh, in the case of my friend, uh, retailer relationships and stuff like that. It is so complex and exhausting to manage all that stuff that you're just like, I want to be a little better tomorrow than I am today and I'll be happy. And then just it's the belief that over time, you'll eventually make a dent in the universe because your company will be so remarkable. But for right now, I just want to be a little better tomorrow than I am today. So those are that's a big gulf between two people who are at the table talking about brand building with each other. I like that. So so can you tell me a little bit, you know, you, when you took over that brand at um, Chobani, you had quite an interesting approach can you talk about how you approached building the brand and, and what the the steps were that you you took when you got there yeah sure so i was at shibani for four and a half years i've i've since left so i'm not there anymore but the when i went there um shibani was a strong company uh but they definitely needed some coherence and clarity to and representation of the brand to help them in the next stages of growth. So I set out a four-year agenda where the first year I called fix the fundamentals. The second year was, I can't remember the exact language, but it was something like get the marketing engine humming. The third year was push innovation outside of Greek yogurt. And then the fourth year was cultural resonance, create cultural resonance and impact. Um, so the first year was really the perspective of how do we fix all the plumbing and the stuff behind the scenes so that we can execute effectively and coherently and with beauty and brilliance over the next four years. So that was everything from the brand strategy to product positioning to re-architecting the product portfolio to uh, redesigning the identity and the identity system around it um, and getting some kind of core capabilities built in the marketing design, creative and media departments within the company. I mean, this was, this was like the unsexy behind the scenes stuff that nobody really saw except for the, for the brand relaunch. So we had a few kind of like um, KPIs that we kind of tracked ourselves against to make sure we were doing that really well. Then the second year, which is getting the marketing machine humming, that was all about saying, okay, we have, we have the capabilities and the people and the, and the frameworks we need 
to think in one mind and to be able to execute as one mind. Now we need to figure out what is the approach to marketing that is going to drive the growth of the core business. Because I knew if we weren't contributing to the financial success of the company, it didn't matter anything else after that. Like you have to take care of the core of the business before you can start expanding beyond the core. So that's where um, the marketing and advertising really took the lead in what we were doing. Whereas the first year, it was really like org design and strategy and brand. This time, it was more um, marketing strategy and, and processes and approach. So we we took that very seriously. We experimented a lot to figure out what was working for our brand. We kind of redid our ways of working within the organization so that we worked with different functions like shopper marketing and sales within the organization better. And again, similarly, we had our own KPIs to let us know if we were doing well on that or not. So we eventually got to a point where we feel we were like doing good enough on that. Um, and then that's when we, we continue to push on that and improve on that. But then that's when we started turning our eye towards innovation. And so I started working much more closely with, um, uh, the internal innovation team work on building out a uh, innovation pipeline and strategy and roadmap for the different types of products that we were going to get into. Um, I founded the new ventures arm of Chibani, where what we would do is we would look at, you know, opportunities in the marketplace. We would make decisions as to whether or not that was something we wanted to do internally by a company or what we or essentially outsource, meaning it, and, food language, it would be co-packing. You would essentially hire a factory rather than do it in-house. You'd hire a factory to kind of make the food for you for a certain amount of time. And there's there's benefits and drawbacks to all three of those things. So it really depended on like what the category was that we saw the opportunity in. Um, and it was great. You know, we we took the traditional private equity mergers and acquisitions model and we literally flipped it on its head. So rather than calling it MA, we called it AM, acquire and mentor. Because the big flaw that we saw in, in the industry was that a lot of these companies were being bought and then just gutted. The people were being kicked out. The business models were being changed. The only thing that didn't change was the brand. Uh, but everything else below the brand, people, processes, and finance would get changed and gutted. And then the company is like a shell of itself. And so the whole acquire and mentor thing was about saying, like, how do we really bring people in and, and respect them as, as uh, new partners in this process? and really protect the integrity of, of the company and stuff. So we did that for a few years. We got to a point where we were pushing into new categories, not just beyond yogurt, but even beyond dairy. So a lot of that stuff was in the pipeline. And so when that stuff was in the pipeline, we started turning our attention to cultural impact as the fourth pillar. And this, and, and luckily this all kind of like had this right cadence in terms of a calendar year. Uh, so by the fourth year we were on, having cultural impact. And so we started doing things that were more around how do we build the brand through having um, playing a role in culture and somehow having cultural commentary. And so there were various different ways that we experimented and tried to figure that out. And we were actually just starting to ramp up some more significant work in that. And then COVID hit and then the multiple global crises hit. So it kind of put um, it poured water <laughs> on the fire that we had been building. Um, but you know, the, the totally understandable. Um, and so I was really proud of the work that the team was doing and we, we had a lot of great momentum behind it and stuff. And so that, that was the, that was the step process that we went through during that four, four year, four and a half year period. 
So, I mean, it's quite a, you sort of stepped into many different places that, that someone with kind of like, you know, a brand title might not kind of traditionally go. Like how did, you know, was this your, did you drive this? Was this something that you saw was kind of critical? You know, how did you, how did you design this position for yourself? Uh, you know, and, and I think there's probably a huge amount of convincing other people inside the organization to also, you know, include you and, and let you do the work with them. Cause it's, this isn't just one man running around a business sort of making waves. There's probably many yeah. people, you know, different departments that are involved. How did, how did that all come about? Well, luckily, I recruited uh, a number of people on my team who are excellent at things that I'm terrible at. So I, <laughs> I made sure <laughs> to recruit for that specifically. So a lot of the success is, is due to them. Um, and also, you know, within the culture of Chobani, Chobani is a growth organization. It is, it's focused on doing things better and different. Um, doesn't mean it's always easy and it doesn't mean that you get yes for everything that you want to do. There's obviously a lot of uphill battles and um, uh, convincing and persuasion that you have to do. But as a general stance, the organization has a, has a tolerance for risk. So, you know, there was a context in which this was possible. There was an open spirit of conversation uh, around it. And there's also the attitude of like, if you have a better idea, bring it forward. And if it's better, it doesn't matter what function you sit in. It doesn't matter how old you are. Like you'll, you'll get a fair listen to your idea. And if it's great, we'll do it. Um, so one of the things that I charged my team with very early on was saying, um, you know, genius steals opportunities. There's no one who's going to bring you a great brief. There's no one who's going to present you because I, because uh, I hired a lot of people who were from agency side. No one's going to put a great opportunity on a silver platter for you. You have to go and make that stuff happen. Now, whether that's you invent your own brief because of you have an opportunity that you see, or you see something done within the organization that isn't being executed with excellence and you believe that you can do better, go do it better. Put an idea on the table, challenge other people and other functions to level up their game um, by bringing ideas that beat their ideas. And it's, you know, it's not to say that it's about competition, but it's about encouraging a culture of not just being on repetition, but a culture that is about uh, mm. making things better and making things happen. And so sometimes you have to put pressure on people and create a sense of competition for people to kind of wake up and be like, Oh, I got to do more than just what I did yesterday. You know, there's the, the old saying that if, you know, if you're still doing what you did five years ago, please stop. And if you're, you know, five years from now, if you're still doing what you were doing five years ago, you're destroying the company. Like you, we all have to advance and evolve and do things differently. And so that was very much the spirit that I was always trying to cultivate uh, with it within the company. And so that allowed a lot of these, this migration of myself and my team into lots of different non-traditional areas of the company. There's also, there's also, no, I mean, I, I want to ask you. Oh, I was just, I was just going to say the other thing that I was going to say, the other thing that I was going to say was just that I have a, I have a very broad perspective of design. I, I practice capital D design, which to me is the creation of desirable change. So I don't see design as just a craft. I think craft is a subcomponent of design and a very important subcomponent of design. But the, the discipline should not be defined by its crafts. 
it should be defined by the impact it seeks to make in the world. And that is creating desirable change. I dig that. I mean, it's, uh, I'd love to ask you at this point, sort of like, what do you define a brand to be? Because, you know, just in that, that last while you talked about, you've touched the visual components of it, you know, the kind of the design and the feel of it, the tone, the, the people delivering it, the products that are being delivered, the markets that we're thinking about, the way we're entering those markets, you sort of exponentially expanding the, the kind of brand. Like how would you define, you know, if someone said to you, like Leland, what is a, what is a brand? Like how do you answer that question? A brand is a consensual hallucination. <laughs> a brand is an imagined reality. It is a useful fiction. So a company is nothing more than a story and a bag of money. If the story wasn't there and the money wasn't there to support the translation of that story into real world behaviors, structures, impacts, and so on, the company wouldn't exist. I mean, if you take like, take like Nike, for example, let's say every Nike office and factory around the world burns down. Did the company go away? No, it would just take out a loan from a bank and build again. Let's say, um, you know, every piece of clothing that Nike made and every television commercial disappeared. Would Nike go away? No, they would just make more. Let's say a, the legal document that incorporated Nike was burned and disappeared. Would Nike go away? No, because people would still think of Nike. They would still have images of Nike. Nike would be as Nike would be like Santa in the sense that Santa is not a physically real thing, but it's so real in our imagination that it shapes our behaviors. So there's a difference between the reality of, of a, like a computer, a door, like something you can physically touch and the reality of imagination or that something stays in our mind and changes our behavior. Just think of kids around Santa or the Easter bunny or the idea of money. Money is a consensual hallucination. There is no inherent value in a paper bill or a metal coin. It is we choose to believe in it because it makes it easier for us to do things together. In the case of money, to exchange things. In the case of a brand, to work together, to have a common goal to have a common set of values with which we prioritize, to have a shared story and sense of identity. Brands are useful fictions. They are nothing but stories. And even when you think of it from the consumer side, think of why you buy like a, 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 heavy, material, a heavy durable good like a dishwasher or a fridge. You don't know anything about dishwashers and fridge, but you know something, you feel something about the brand. You know, oh, that company, you know, they've been around a long time. You know, my mom used it a lot. I have friends who've said good things about it. I just kind of, I kind of like, I would like to, I would like to have that brand in my, my kitchen. Okay, I'll buy that. What about that was a real decision? Nothing. It was all a story that you held in your mind about that brand and therefore that product 
And so you bought it. It made it easier for you to buy it. Or when you wear Nike on your chest versus uh, like some unknown athletic brand. Like what that says, what, what Nike says about you is a useful fiction to you to help you feel better. So, so these things create persuasion. They persuade buying behavior. Um, now, that is fundamentally what a brand is. It is a corporate mythology. Um, I'm a big believer in the idea of pattern and that uh, stories are a form of pattern, that mythologies are a form of pattern. They tell us how the world is structured, what's important in that world, and then how we move through that world. So if you think of any big company, those characteristics are the, are the exact same. It's an imagined story about how the world works, about what's important to us, and what it will take to succeed. Anyone who runs a company will tell you those are the, so the, those are the most important things in a brand for their company. That's why they hammer home the brand over and over again to their employees and to their consumers. So it's a useful fiction, or if you prefer to call it, it's a, it's a corporate mythology. Um, and oftentimes those corporate mythologies are, are uh, repetitions of ancient Greek mythologies. So here in the United States, there's a company called Target who became very famous for making design available to the masses. So you took something that was of the elites, that was highly desirable and made life better, and you gave it to the people who it would, to the majority of people who desperately needed it because it would make their life better. That's the, that's the Greek mythology of Prometheus, of bringing light from Mount Olympus down to the humans so that they could survive. You have Nike. I'll use Nike again. Nike is the story about overcoming, about the champion inside of us overcoming all obstacles to achieve that uh, self-enlightenment, that, that apex of who we are. That's just the Greek mythology of Hercules, a mere mortal going through all these trials thrown at him by the gods to emerge so victorious that he becomes a god himself. And isn't that what we do with athletes? We put them on a pedestal and they become almost gods in of themselves. So, you know, I can go down the list of tons of different companies whose consensual hallucinations are simply Greek mythologies dressed up in, in the clothing of their time and their corporation and their category. That's what a brand is. Now, there's also the conversation about practically, mechanistically, what does a brand need to do to, uh, in terms of its performance on the business to know that you actually have built a brand, right? So I think there's a few things. One is it needs to uh, uh, increase your purchasing, your pricing power. The more that you can convince people and persuade people with the brand, the more you're able to increase the perceived value of your product. And therefore, you can raise your price without people complaining. The second thing is, is it can influence purchase decisions. If you're looking between two products on a shelf, you reach for that product because of the way it makes you feel. And so you get preference drivers out of it. And then the third one is it makes your media dollars work harder. If you're continually investing in a, in a common story over and over again, you don't have to do much to trigger those emotional equities in people other than just sometimes show people the logo. I think Nike, again, just because everyone's familiar with it, is a really good example of that. You can just put, you could take a cheap shirt and put the Nike logo on it. And all of a sudden it's a cool shirt. 
you could make a very weird piece of graphic design and put the Nike logo on it. And all of a sudden it becomes a cool piece of graphic design. It's because both of those things become imbued with those emotional equities that have been built over millions of dollars and decades of consistent emphasis. Um, so that all of a sudden the things that you do communicate with become that much more powerful because they're communicating so much more than just what is on the surface seen. And so what you get out of that is you get more effective media dollars. For every dollar you spend on making this up, you get $10 of impact because it's more memorable. It resonates more emotionally and so on. So you get all sorts of financial benefits from building a product or building a brand effectively and consistently over years and, and recognizing that at the end of the day, a brand is nothing but a consensual hallucination that has very significant business benefits to it. I like, I love that you've got this philosophical take and then it, it also becomes exceedingly practical um, at the end. So, so do you think the, the Greeks were the best brand builders that we've ever seen? Um, what do you think? Time has just lifted them up and like they've, they've got sort of, they can never be measured against anyone else because they were the only ones who wrote anything down. Yeah, well, I think I think Western culture has certainly drawn from Greek culture the most, and therefore it's the most resonant with us because it's the soil in which many of our stories have emerged or been replicated. To say that they're the best, of, you know, in time, who knows? Like, I, I, I don't think there's such thing as a best. Um, but to say that the Greeks are the most influential to us, yes, they are, because it's also the earliest recorded mythologies. Um, and traditions and rituals that we have in as complete a fashion as we do. Certainly we have it of earlier cultures, but we don't have it as uh, replete with stories as and, and robust of narratives as we do from Greek culture. So those, because of that, tend to be the ones that we pull upon and draw our inspiration from the most. Um, but yeah, Greek, Greek culture as, as one of the cultures we can learn from is, is a really remarkable uh, mythological structure from which to draw upon and get lots of inspiration. And it's, it's an endless well of inspiration, um, that we can draw from every day. And I love this, this idea, cause it also taps into sort of how we as humans behave, you know? So, so, I mean, a story, my cousin drove a Mitsubishi cult Bucky when I was like 15 and in that moment, I looked at it and Barry, I was like, Barry's the coolest dude I know. And he's driving this thing. Therefore, this thing is the coolest car that you can have. Fast forward five years time, I justified to myself, I had all of these practical reasons as to why I should purchase a Mitsubishi Colt. I was like, oh, I can move this around and I can do that and fuel economy and blah, blah. But the reality is if I really, really looked deep in my heart, it was because Barry had one, mm -hmm. therefore I wanted one and I bought it and that car made me very happy for, I think, the nine years that I, I drove it sure. around. But the decision, I, I caked it in logic, but it actually was completely illogical. There was no, no real reason that I should have wanted that car, except I did. Yeah, I mean, look, making rational decisions is cognitively taxing. It takes a lot of energy and burning of calories to make uh, rational, well thought through decisions. I mean, 
one of the one of the worst decisions that economists in their history ever made was that was establishing this somewhat useful fiction of the uh, homo economicus, the, the person who makes the most rational decision in their best interests. Um, it was only partially useful because it was only useful to economists to to make flawed models. It was not useful to anyone else because <laughs> it was in no way a reflection of reality. And you're a perfect example of that. We're all driven by emotion because emotion is less taxing. We want, we like patterns in our lives because we want to know what's right. And when we're not following a pattern in our life, we have to build the pattern on our own. And that is what rational work does. It says, there's no obvious path for me towards the best outcome. I need to build my, my pathway, my pattern of knowledge to reveal what that right answer is. And that takes, that takes a lot of effort on an, on an individual level. And if you're doing that, whether you're buying a car or a house or a can of beans, like it's just, you can't do that with every decision or even like, you know, which way do you turn at an intersection? You want to just go on autopilot and just go. Um, and that's what brands really well-built brands help enable. They override that need for that rational structure building and just says, look, it's really good. We're consistent, we're authentic, we're credible, and we're delivering something of clear, clearly communicated value to you in this specific instance with, with products that have a reputation for being excellent. Then people just go on autopilot. Then it's just like, you make it easy for people. And if we know one thing from technology, it's easy always wins. Much like an easy, mm. easy lie spreads more fastly than a complicated truth. No one wants to tax their brain figuring out the rationality and logic of something. They just want the easy answer, even if it is not in their best interest. This is why we have flat earthers um, running around <laughs> yes. and spreading a lie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's super interesting. I mean, it, it's just um, so. so yeah. What role, you know, what role do you think people who are building brands should take in, you know, because, uh, you know, I love this thought that that the easy lie perpetuates faster than the complicated truth, you know, and brands are so culturally important and they shape narratives. Like, what role do you think brands should be? playing in our societies and in our because we're sort of lifting them up onto these pedestals and like you say they're corporate mythologies they actually are just corporations underneath the mythology there are companies so what did you say they're just a bag of money and a story what do you think those bags of money should be thinking about and doing with their, their brands well so are you and this is this is part of the area where it gets troubled talking about brands. Are you talking about brand as in a marker of identity and narrative, or are you talking about brand as a company and what companies should do and what role they should play? Well, so I suppose I'm asking the question: Whereas companies are the ones that are building and creating these narratives, like what role do you think they should be thinking about? In you know, I know it's quite easy to to think that companies should be standing up for societal issues, but I don't always see that aligning with the story that the company is telling. So how do you think companies should navigate this 
space because there's seemingly more pressure on companies to make some kind of a stand or you know draw some sort of a line in the sand and and be more clear whereas i think they've historically been able to skirt those issues if they felt the need to yeah it's a i think that's a complicated question because on one hand I mean, I mean, look, you know, you have all the way up to the Supreme Court talking about how companies are humans, right? And then you have this, what I would consider antiquated, but still nonetheless present ideology that from Milton Freeman that says the only purpose of a company is to make profit for its shareholders. And so in that wide range, it's it's tough to make a declarative statement that sweeps across all companies because I think companies are just organisms like any ecosystem. There are, there are people at the top of the food chain. There are companies at the bottom of the food chain. There are um, net good. There are net bad. There are all sorts of checks and balances that have to be in place for this diversity of, of, creatures in an ecosystem to coexist in, in the most beneficial way possible. So this idea of making a sweeping claim that all companies should be this way or that way, I don't think is realistic or even rooted in any biological reality. Because if you think of, if you take like farming, for example, the, the richest, most productive, um, areas of land are, are often the ones that are the most diverse in terms of the different types of uh, crops and plants and whatever that are, that are all packed in together in a very tight space. And all of them have a different role to play complementing other ones, uh, other plants within that ecosystem. Some, you know, put nitrogen into the ground, other plants suck up that nitrogen to grow. Some are meant to be low-level plants. Some are meant to be high-level plants, providing shade to the other plants that need less sunlight in order to produce the nitrogen to put it into the soil and stuff. So it's, it's, a, it's a very complex arrangement of different types of organisms that all need to play and do different things in order for the collective to grow. And I think it's the same way with companies. Absolutely, there are some companies that should and have every right to take a position on purpose. I think there are companies that don't need to do that, either because it's there, it's not appropriate for them, that it doesn't, it's not authentic to their business model, or it's just it's it's an unnecessary pursuit, or maybe they do it in a different way. You know, so I, I'm always wary of saying all companies should be this or that. And like once again, you're very philosophical and very practical all, <laughs> all at the same time. On our call, we were talking about, you know, one of the things I asked you is what was sort of interesting you at the moment. And, and you answered that sort of trying to figure out uh, the business model for design and sort of creativity isn't the best one. And you were sort of trying to think of better ways to, to leverage those two things um, as, a, as a business model. Yeah. So. I think in general, the creative industry is having its come to Jesus moment with its business model. Um, 
the the industry has for too long sold time as its measure of value. Now, obviously, that is in opposition to what clients really want. Clients don't want you to take a longer time working on something, right? But if you're incentivized <laughs> to take a long time because that's how you make more money, obviously, there are opposing incentives in the relationship, which is not a good basis for a relationship. Um, and time obviously is in no way a reflection of the value that uh, agencies create. I think the other thing that is tough is that a lot of agencies, whether you're design, advertising, or other, are too often selling the production costs of deliverables with a markup on it. Um, so whatever it costs to make something, great, we'll throw 20% on top and then here's the bill. So then what you're doing is you're tying yourself to a output. And the output is quite frankly, one of the least important things to a client. The client cares about two things, the strategy and the outcome. Those are two things they're willing to pay a lot of money for. And when we sell time or when we sell product or output, we're not in any way benefiting from any of the outcomes that we create. And remember my comment earlier is that design is about creating desirable change. So we should be incentivized by the change we create, not the tactics or the objects we make to incentivize that. Um, the other big problem with that is, is we give away the strategy. We actually, if we even charge for it, we undercharge for it because we put too much value on the output. So already, we're either not paying attention to the thing that the client wants to care the most about and we're underselling and selling for cheap, if not for free, one of the things that the client wants to pay the most money for. And then we're charging on the thing that the client wants to pay less for. <laughs> and so already in that, we're struggling with, with an economic business model. Now, the other big challenge with all of this is award shows. Award shows play an incredibly important role in the development and the sense of mastery of individuals in their career. I absolutely pursued winning a lot of awards um, as part of the Chibani experiment because I wanted validation from a third party from a third party to say that we were doing excellent work that was competing with any other agency in the world. Um, the problem becomes when we replace when we think awards are evidence of our worth to clients. So there's so many websites for agencies that I've been on where it's like they list all the awards on the front of the page. And we think that that is going to increase the perceived value of the agency. Um, it doesn't. Because again, clients care about outcomes and uh, strategy. Nowhere in there is awards. Awards are kind of like signals that maybe you're talking to someone who's an expert, but if you can't move beyond the awards conversation and flashing the medal in front of the clients, you're on a downward slope in terms of your perceived value. Um, awards are nice, but they are not everything. And too often we treat them as everything. So the challenge becomes for agencies to figure out what it is that agencies need to do to more attach what they do to outcomes. And there's an entire world of 
discussion around this that a lot, frankly, a lot of people in the creative community aren't a part of because it's uninteresting sounding. I mean, to be quite honest, who wants to talk about price point? Who wants to talk about how to write proposals? Who wants to talk about different um, incentive models and ways of measurement? Like it's like, that's just not interesting, but it is necessary. Mm. And sometimes we have to do what is necessary to get to where we want to be. And so I think there needs to be more people who look at the agency business models as a design problem rather than a business problem, because that's what it is at the end of the day. It's a design problem. We are using, to put it bluntly, old world business models in a new world. And that's why so many of these agencies are being driven to lower price points per project, being driven to project-based work it being driven to commoditization by procurement. It's because we're not working hard at finding those new business models. And there's a lot of great conversation out there and a lot of really interesting ideas out there that can be applied on a project by project basis, can be applied on a client by client basis. So it's not that agencies need to totally shift, you know, uh, kitchen sink and all to a new model overnight. It's that they need to start experimenting with what's going to work in their business and also learning and engaging in those different dialogues so that we know how to get the real credit for our type of work and also ensure that clients understand the real value that we're bringing is not a color scheme, is not a typeface, is not a logo, is not an ad. Those are just things we do in the process of creating desirable change for our clients. When really it's the knowledge and the strategy of knowing what to do and then the evidence that we can create that change. Those are the things that we need to emphasize. I mean, I could go on for this for a whole nother podcast, but I'll kind of just stop right there. I mean, I love it. It feels like we've beautifully come full circle. I think it's that, you know, you've, you've been in the agency world and you've now also been in the client world. And I think it's the design problem is how do we merge those sort of worlds together slightly more because that's in that is where the 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 business model lies you know if you look at the industry the music industry is a great example like streaming has changed the way we buy music it's it's fundamentally altered how people record where they distribute how they sell how they monetize it's it's fundamentally shifted the entire industry and i think we're also sitting at a similar similar kind of point um Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not sure if the technology was the best thing for the musicians. It just is what, you know, it is what has happened. So if that conversation had been slightly different, potentially there would have been a slightly better outcome for the the musicians in the, the industry. Yeah. I mean, like with all sorts of technologies, it depends on where you sit looking at the technology, whether you deem it morally good or bad. Right. Um, so. I think in the design context, we have to shift where we're sitting to look at these changes or these pressures that are being put on the agency model as not, oh, that's the way it is now, but to say, what is it saying about how we're working? What is it saying about what we're not doing well? What are the opportunities we're missing out on? Because we got to jump out of the fishbowl and jump into a new fishbowl if we're going to save the agency business model. And look, at the, at the end of the day, this is also, if you take an ecosystem, biological ecosystem approach to it, for, for a long time, brand-oriented agencies, whether you're an ad agency or a, or a, or a design firm, were, were the alpha predators in a very limited 
agency ecosystem. There weren't a lot of different types of agencies to compete with. And they were, and these two were alpha predators because they were the ones who controlled brand, which were the biggest leverage of purchase persuasion in the marketplace, given the economic dynamics. Now we're a very different place. We're in a very different place where experimentation, analytics, um, uh, performance marketing, growth design, things like that, e-commerce, those are things that are the biggest drivers and creators, or biggest drivers of persuasion, biggest creators of revenue. So a whole new uh, uh, class of agencies have emerged. Multiple new ones have emerged, further enriching the agency ecosystem. And so the alpha predators are no longer the alpha predators. So it's not that we're trying to get agencies to go back to the way it was. We have to recognize that we're now in a much more complicated and rich and dynamic ecosystem of agencies. And mm -hmm. we have to figure out what is, if you're, if you're a brand agency, what is the brand agency's potential in that ecosystem? And how can you complement and show distinctive differentiated value to those other uh, agencies in the ecosystem who are experiencing meteoric growth because they're brand new. They have, they're working from a small base, small size, so their growth can be fast and steep, but eventually they're going to level off too. Eventually all growth flattens mm -hmm. out. There's no such thing as infinite growth. And so what happens now in, a, in an ecosystem where everything's stable and you have a much greater diversity of very strong agencies in it. I think that's a really interesting question to start talking about positioning, agency narrative, agency business models, and so on, because it's, it's what's needed to move forward. I think that's such a great note to end the podcast on. Leland, thank you so much for your, your eloquence and your philosophy and your practicality. I, I, I got a lot out of this. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And we'll catch you in the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. All right. See you, buddy. Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season, and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa, and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape.